<clears throat> Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We'll read the whole chapter, the uh, portion of Scripture from this passage I'm going to be focusing my attention upon. It's found in verses 24 through 27, however. Please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, What then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. <coughs> and Jesus rebuked the demon, and he came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast him out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their own sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. 
Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. The word redemption is really no longer a common English term that people are, are familiar with. It no longer has the familiar ring that it once had in society. I can remember when I was a child collecting blue chip stamps or collecting green stamps and putting them into these little books and taking those little books to a catalog which told you what you could purchase with these completed books of stamps. You could go down to what was called a redemption center. And you could redeem a particular item there. Normally, they would have a lot of household uh, items there. Pots and pans, ironing boards, sheets, uh, those types of things. But in that redemption, there are certain items that are true of all types of redemption that follow a biblical mode and manner. First of all, when I went down and took that little booklet and redeemed that item, it was something very definite that I had in mind to redeem. It wasn't every item in the store that I could purchase with those particular stamps. I had to purchase and narrow it down to whatever I had in that particular book to redeem and what I desired to redeem. Secondly, once the item was paid for, once I had delivered the books to them of stamps, that item belonged to me. It no longer belonged to the store, to the redemption center. It now belonged to me. In other words, it was not a potential redemption that I was making. It was an actual redemption. I actually had something in hand that I had redeemed from that store. Thirdly, if I did not have the sufficient amount of stamps in order to redeem the item that I desired, that item remained in the store. I could not take it with me. It's because it did not belong to me. In other words, there again was no neutrality as to who owned the item. At one point, it belonged to the store. When it was redeemed, at that point, it became mine. That kind of an actual transfer occurred. Now, turning to the uh, Old Testament for just a moment, if you'd like to look at this passage, I won't be reading it, but I will be very briefly referring to it. It's in Leviticus chapter 25. There we find how those who had been sold into slavery were to be redeemed from their slavery. Here is an Israelite who has been sold into slavery, uh, into slavery of one, uh, one who is a stranger, an alien, not an Israelite. He's serving an alien who lives within the land. Now, God said that Israelites were not to enslave Israelites, that they were to be treated as hired servants, not to be slaves. But here is an alien family who own Israelite slaves. They've been sold into slavery. How can they be redeemed? How can they be released from their slavery? God makes it very clear, again, that a kinsman redeemer can come and pay the price for them. At that point, they can be redeemed. They're no longer then under the, uh, the ownership of that particular family. Or they could wait until the year of Jubilee, which occurred every 50 years. But there was a way to redeem those Israelites. But again, 
I would have you notice as you read that particular passage in Leviticus 25, verses 47 and following, that these characteristics that I mentioned with regard to redemption and the stamps are as well true with regard to redeeming people from slavery. It was a very definite person or persons that were redeemed. When a family member came to redeem a fellow family member, he, in giving the price, he didn't redeem all of the slaves that that master owned at that particular point in time. He only redeemed the one for whom he paid the price. That's the first characteristic. It was an accomplished fact, in other words, at that point. Secondly, again, once the price was paid, the owner was obligated and must deliver the former slave over to the one who had paid the price. The owner no longer then owns that slave. And thirdly, If the relative, the kinsman redeemer, did not in fact have the sufficient amount of money to redeem the loved one, that loved one stayed in the ownership of that master. The transfer could not occur. So there was no, there was no hypothetical, no, in, in that particular society, nothing that we would know as a hypothetical redemption. For the slave didn't know, to whom do I belong? Am I free? Am I a slave still? He knew because either the price was paid or it wasn't paid. Very clear. Now, this is the background. When we start talking about redemption in the New Covenant, this is the background that we must continuously go back to to understand what our redemption from sin means. What Christ accomplished for his people. And you might think, what a strange passage in the New Covenant to go to. Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. This account between the Apostle Peter and Jesus and where this miracle occurs where Christ commands Peter to go and catch a fish and in the mouth of that fish he would find the necessary money to pay the temple tax. But this is a passage, dear ones, about redemption. A very clear passage once we see the significance of all that's in here. One which I pray will cause your heart to rejoice. It's interesting that as the Skeptics look at this particular passage. Uh, Certainly, they're trying to, in various ways, minimize the miracle that occurred here. They're saying that Jesus actually commanded uh, Peter to go to the sea and to catch enough fish that he could then take to the market and exchange for the amount of taxes or money to pay. To the, for the temple tax. That's what the critics and skeptics will say as, as, uh, as to uh, um, do away with the miracle that actually occurred. But the passage is very clear that that's not what occurred at all. Uh, this was miraculous. And it is simply another sign and wonder that the Lord used to direct His people's attention to the fact that He is the sovereign Lord and Savior. That he controls all things. And so this is a testimony to Christ's deity, his sonship, that he is the Son of God. But it has a very particular spiritual uh, message for us, God's people, as well. And we want to look at that uh, this Lord's Day. Just a little bit of background Now, as we look at this passage, the Lord had been ministering uh, outside his new headquarters in Capernaum. And while he was gone from Capernaum, there had come due the temple tax. 
which God had commanded Moses to collect in order to carry on the sacrificial ministry of the temple. And it was this particular temple tax that was now uh, overdue, apparently. Jesus now returns to Capernaum and these who collect the temple tax come and say, doesn't your master uh, pay the temple tax? Now, we need to understand something about this temple tax if we're to understand the passage. So we need to go back again to the Old Testament. And it comes from the passage which Elder Domes read from Exodus chapter 30. So if you'll turn back there with me, Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. We won't read the passage again since we have done so already, but I want to just note some, uh, some observations about this temple tax. First of all, this temple tax is called ransom money. Look at verse 12. When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. This is ransom money. This was a, a tax, a way of indicating to God's people that God had redeemed them, that they didn't belong to themselves, that they were a redeemed people. And this was a way of continuously reminding them that they were a redeemed people, paid for. Now, this doesn't indicate because they paid the tax that they could work their way into heaven or buy their way into heaven. That's not the the essence. God establishes the term, however, what they are to give as a symbol to indicate that they are a redeemed and ransomed people. A half a shekel. Notice, secondly, that this temple tax is called an offering to the Lord. Look at verses 13 and following. The last part of verse 13 says, The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Verse 14, that last phrase, shall give an offering to the Lord. as well as verse 15, when you give an offering to the Lord. Three times. This is an offering to the Lord that is paid instead of one's own life being destroyed as it should have been destroyed. This is a way of indicating that they have been ransomed. This is an offering to the Lord because God was the one who had redeemed them. Now notice thirdly about this text that the cost was the same for all people. It was a half shekel. Whether rich or poor, they all paid the same amount. Verse 15, The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. God indicating that none of you deserve to be redeemed by God. None are less redeemable. None are more redeemable. You have to all be redeemed at the same cost that I establish as God, as Jehovah. There are not some who are more righteous than others and it takes a lesser price because you have more works of righteousness. Nor some who are more wicked and and, and the price has to be greater in order to redeem you. No, no. God is saying through this that all, great or small, rich or poor, male or female, everyone has to be redeemed at the same price. Finally, from this text. Fourthly, the text says it was an atonement, an atonement or covering for sinful people. Verse 15 The last phrase says, to make atonement for yourselves. Again, in verse 16, And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel 
and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. This was (coughs) atonement money, as it were, indicating their need for atonement, for a covering because of sin. Now, the purpose, the immediate purpose for which this was used, it went into the treasury and was used to supply all of the needs for the tabernacle and was used subsequently after the temple was raised up to supply the needs for the temple so that the sacrificial priestly ministry could continue amongst them. And certainly from that particular principle, we see the need of God's people paying for, supplying the needs of the minister so that the gospel can go forth, so that you can be enriched with the Word of God, so that you can grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, for God's people who love the Word of God, to support a minister is not a great task at all. It's not a burden. It's a joy because of their love for God and and for His Word. And so it was for God's people in the Old Testament. And so as we turn back to Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 17, verse 24 and following, back to our text, it is this very same temple tax that God uses to reveal to Peter and to us that it is only Christ who can pay that debt for us. And that by only supernatural means, not by natural means, not by our own efforts. And so Peter, when asked in, in this text, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He responds with a yes. Undoubtedly, he had witnessed Christ pay the temple tax uh, previously. They perhaps had been, as I said earlier, out of town. The temple tax became due. Now, the, those who collect come and ask, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now, Jesus, being omniscient, knew that this conversation had gone on between Peter and these who collect, collected the uh, taxes. And so, the Lord asked Peter, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their own sons, that is, from their children in their own family, do, do the kings of the earth collect taxes from their own children? The royal family? Is that who they collect taxes from? Or do they collect them rather from strangers outside of the royal family? <coughs> now, Peter responds correctly when he says, They collect taxes from strangers, not from the sons, not from the children. Therefore, at Peter's response, the Lord says and declares in verse 26, Then the sons are free. That is, then the sons are exempt from the tax. Now, what is Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying is, I am the Son of God. I am under no obligation to pay this tax because I am the Son of God. I'm the Son of the Almighty King. That's my Father's house that they want to supply with these funds, uh, the money to go to supply the needs of my Father's house. You remember how Jesus said uh, to, the, to the Jews earlier, do not make my Father's house a house of merchandise. And so, Jesus is simply saying, I'm under no legal obligation to pay this particular tax. I'm a son. <clears throat> Furthermore, we know that Jesus was under no obligation to pay this particular tax because of what this tax implied and meant. 
It was a ransom. It was for sinners. Not for someone who is sinless. Not for someone who had committed no sin, was perfect in righteousness and holiness. He was under no obligation at all to pay that tax. And so the Lord continues in verse 27. And we read the following. Nevertheless, Jesus says, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Now, this is a miracle. Uh, a wondrous miracle. Jesus knew out of whether he knew which fish had a coin in his mouth or whether the Lord put the very first fish uh, that he caught, put that coin into his mouth, we don't know. So whether it was a question of Christ's omniscience and just knowing which fish had this coin, or whether it's a question of his omnipotence in creating a coin, perhaps even a fish. That's not essential. There was a miracle that occurred in this particular case. It was not something, therefore, of Peter's doing. This was beyond his ability to pay the temple tax, which indicated that he was a sinner, was beyond his efforts and ability in this case. It was miraculous redemption on behalf of Peter that Christ accomplished. You see, dear ones, Peter's the one who needed to pay it. Peter deserved to pay it. He was the sinner. He was the one who had flaunted the holiness and righteousness of God and treated it as if it were nothing. It was the Lord of glory who humbled himself and paid for Peter's ransom. And in so doing, the Lord Jesus says, Take that money and give it to them for me and for you. He didn't deserve, or he was not obligated to pay it. But pay it, he did. Pay it, he did. For Peter and for himself. You see, the scripture teaches in 2 Corinthians 8 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. That through his poverty, through him, his humbling himself and going to the cross, that's his poverty. For he hung upon a cross, accused of crimes he never committed. He died for your sins and became poorer than any man ever became poor because he bore the endless wrath of God for the sins, not of himself, but the sins of his people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can see the theme of this particular text clearly at this point. It speaks of redemption. This text speaks of God supplying what man does not have. It speaks of the need of a miraculous supply because the cost is infinite. It's our sin. The judgment is infinite. It requires the sinless Son of God to accomplish this redemption, the cost of His own life. We're not talking about, dear ones, when we talk about redemption. We're not talking about some theoretical issue 
with little or no practical consequence or significance to you. Simply an issue for theologians to hammer out in their ivory towers. We're talking about something that is intensely practical to every child of God. To know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. They belong to God. They no longer belong to themselves. They no longer belong to uh, Satan. They no longer belong to the state. They don't belong to whatever human institution there may be upon the earth here. They belong, in essence, to God. It does not mean that they do not have responsibilities that God calls them to fulfill while they're here on earth to the various institutions which He has established. But in essence, they belong to the Lord God. You see, nothing in all of life really could be more important to you than to know of your redemption in Christ and all of its implications. <coughs> Let me simply give to you now, I want to develop this idea, concept of redemption just a little bit more. There are two essential views with regard to uh, redemption that I would like to talk about with you. Uh, today, this first view would be summarized this way, that Christ came to die for all sinners in order to potentially redeem them from sin and hell, only awaiting the faith of that sinner to make the redemption really true. In other words, the first view says the redemption is not accomplished. The redemption is only a potential hypothetical redemption until there is faith. And when there is faith, then the redemption is an actual redemption. That would be the Arminian position. The second view is that Christ's death as a substitute in the place of certain sinners actually, factually accomplished Redemption. The sins of all those for whom Christ died were indeed paid in full. Every single last one of them was paid in full so that nothing at all can be added to that price. In fact, to try to add to that price is to do despite and scorn to the precious blood of Christ because it was sufficient. To try to add to something that's already sufficient it is, is to say it was not sufficient. And so, as believers, when we continue to, as it were, save ourselves or to make ourselves more acceptable before God, God, I'm going to continue working because I know I really haven't been and shown myself to have been one who needed to be redeemed or, or, or longed to be redeemed. But maybe if I just work hard enough, I'll be able to show you that, uh, that I really have, uh, do believe this truth. But dear ones, again, realize that Christ has redeemed us not because we were lovely or lovable, but He set His love upon us to redeem us. And so the question becomes essentially, was Christ's redemption for sinners actual? Factual and real? Or was it rather potential, hypothetical, and provisional? What do the Scriptures teach? Turn with me to Hebrews 1.3. Here in this passage, <coughs> we find the glories of the Son of God displayed of His character, of His nature. And it says in verse 3, "...who being the brightness of His glory, of the Father's glory, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high." <clears throat> 
Another version states it this way, when he had made purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Was purification of sin through Christ's death a potential reality or was it an accomplished reality according to this text? He didn't sit down waiting for his sacrifice to purge people of sin. It says when it was, when their sins were purged, when their sins were cleansed, he sat down at the right hand of God. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean, dear ones, if it doesn't mean that the sacrifice which He offered upon the cross was accepted by the Father for all of those for whom Christ died? If there had been one sin that had gone unpaid for by Christ, He could not have been raised from the dead. One single little solitary sin had not been paid for by Jesus for those people that he intended to die for. He could not have been raised. That's what his resurrection indicates. That it is finished, the work that Christ came to accomplish for his people. Hebrews 9.12, one last passage. Hebrews 9.12 Speaking of the redemption of Jesus Christ as our great high priest, it says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, this is not clearly a hypothetical redemption. This is an eternal redemption. It's not a provisional redemption. It's an eternal, accomplished redemption. He obtained it. And it lasts forever and ever. And it never loses its effect. The cost of Christ's blood, dear ones, cannot be diminished in the... At all. Dear one, since redemption in Scripture is never presented as something potentially true, but as a transaction that is really true, and since if an actual payment is not made, then there is no redemption at all. Remember, I made that point earlier. If there's no, if the sufficient cost is not paid, it's not as though it's a hypothetical redemption. It's as though there is no redemption at all. And so as we read the various passages that talk about Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law in Galatians chapter 3, There's nothing in that that's hypothetical. There's either redemption and payment for those sins. They've been purged. And Christ has either obtained eternal redemption for His people or there is no redemption at all. None. There's no neutrality. No in-between position that the Scripture leaves us with at all. And so, who did Christ come to redeem? the Lord Jesus very clearly came to redeem all of those whom God had given to him from the foundations of the earth to redeem. Those who were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the earth. In John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, (coughs) all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Dear ones, grab a hold of these promises this day. 
sink your teeth into the meat of God's word right now and chew it and be nourished by it. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. That day of resurrection, raise each and every one whom God has given Christ to save. John 17 The same ones that he was referring to in John chapter 6. John 17, verse 6. Jesus says in his great high priestly prayer for his people before he went to the cross, he prays for all of his people and he says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Referring to Judas, who was a demon, Jesus said, who was never one of his own. From the very beginning, Judas, chosen to be the disciple of Christ, never belonged to Jesus Christ. It's one of those kinds of indications, I think, that comes to us as a warning. Never to, to glory in and to be assured of our salvation, but never to take our salvation for granted. Here is one who is that close to Jesus, but never truly belonged to him. Therefore, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works within us both to will and to do his good pleasure. Well, was Jesus in John 17 only praying for his disciples, the, the apostles? Verse 20 I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus distinguishes according to his discriminating love, his sovereign love, he distinguishes between those he came to redeem and those he did not come to redeem. Matthew 1.21 says, His name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Not for the goats, but for the sheep. And then he says to the Pharisees immediately afterwards, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Well, if he came to lay down his life and to give his life for the sheep, and the Pharisees or the Jews he was speaking to are not his sheep, that would indicate he didn't come to die for them. John 15, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Paul gives warning and admonition to the elders. To all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God 
by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. <coughs> Dear ones, if Christ did, died to redeem only His church, why then does the Scripture speak in other passages of Him dying for the sins or coming as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world or being a propitiation for the whole world or being given as a ransom for all. Why do we find passages like this in the Scriptures? Well, very simply, without going into a whole lot of detail, God wants to make it absolutely clear that He is not the God of the Jews only. That He is the God of Gentiles. And people all over the world, not in simply this one area and part of the world, are His people. But He has His sheep. In other folds, will bring them into this fold. And He will be the shepherd over all of them. <clears throat> Dear ones, Christ did not have a potential love for you nor did He lay down His life as a potential price for your redemption. He died for you as His church. But I want to make it absolutely clear to you, He died for you individually as well. Person by person. You are not simply a part of a nameless, faceless mass of people for whom Christ died. He died for you he died for every one of you who put your faith and trust in Him. You belong to Him as individuals. You are the apple of His eye. He was my substitute, dear ones. He died very specifically in my place. I put Him there. You put Him there. And He died in your place. And His love was particularly set upon you, not because of any good in you at all. There was nothing, as I said earlier, attractive to God in your life nor in mine that caused Him to draw near to us with that kind of love. His grace and mercy were not bestowed upon every individual in the world but upon you, discriminating love. And in spite of all of my contemptible pride and rebellion against Him, and all that He calls holy, He died in my place. So, dear ones, whatever the critics may say, I don't want to hear anything about a potential love or a potential Savior. Tell me about a love that is sovereign and almighty and reaches down to actually accomplish what it sets out to accomplish to save those upon whom that love is set. Don't tell me about an impotent love that simply desires my salvation, that wishes or hopes for my salvation, but can do nothing to accomplish it. Don't tell me about a redemption that means nothing and that accomplishes nothing until I make it mean something by my supposed faith or repentance or good works. That's simply to pour contempt on the precious blood of Christ and imply that it's not pure enough or powerful enough to save me or that his life was not sinless enough to actually pay for all my sin in full, or that God did not consider the life of his only son a sufficient price to redeem me until I make that redemption real by my will, by my faith, by my cooperation. Away with all such man-exalting ideas. Give me only Jesus, dear ones, and His invaluable blood that was shed for me. And I know and need never doubt again that I am loved forever. 
that I'm redeemed forever, purchased with the infinitely precious life of God's own dear Son. Who in all of the universe, dear ones, is ever going to offer God something more valuable than the life of Christ so as to take us from His hand? Absolutely no one. It's unthinkable that there exists anyone or anything so valuable as God's own Son. And you know, dear ones, the fact that I was redeemed at that price, the price being God's own dear Son, does not mean that there's something special about me. It only indicates how heinous my sin is in God's sight, that it required the Son of God to lay down His life for me to, in order to pay it. We had a an old, older lady in one of the congregations I pastored who really had difficulties because of her love of animals. Difficulties with the fact of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Sacrificing the, these poor, innocent little sheep and, and goats and things like this. And, and she just couldn't understand you know, why God would put to death all these animals. She was very concerned about this, of course. Well, it opened up a wonderful opportunity to show her and to demonstrate to her the fact that we as sinners, it is our lives that should be taken. It is our life that should be, our blood that should be spilt. It is we who deserve to be there. But God is showing His amazing grace and love even in the Old Testament through the sacrifice of all of these animals and pointing to the fact that His Son was to come to end all of that once and for all. Where is boasting in the supposed worthiness of my life when I understand this concept of redemption? Where is pride in anything good that I can offer to God? It is consumed into dust and ashes in the presence of the cross of Christ. It is the gracious God of love alone that can be exalted and magnified when we properly understand biblical redemption. Dear ones, the redemption of our miserable body and souls did not win God's love. God loved us while we were yet His enemies. It was not the fact that we finally were redeemed and then God began to love us. He set His love upon us while we were enemies and we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. What can separate us therefore from the love of Christ Jesus? If God has given His Son for us, won't He provide everything else that we need? If He has taken care of our greatest need, will He not provide every other lesser need for us, His people? O oh, we of little faith. You see, ultimately, when we distrust Christ for even the provisions of life, it is a slap in the face of God at the sight of His love and the way He has demonstrated it to us in Christ and providing all of these needs. Certainly, as His people, we must grow in understanding if He has provided eternal redemption, He will provide everything else. As we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper today, listen to Matthew chapter 26 as we now seek to make transition into the Lord's Supper. <coughs> Matthew 26, <clears throat> verse 26 through 28. Notice the words that the Lord uses here. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Let me pause there. For the remission of sins. Not for the possible remission of sins. Not for the hypothetical remission of sins. 
but for the accomplished actual fact of remitting all of our debts that we have against God. We are indebted before God with an eternal debt and all of those debts have been remitted through the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 29, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Even in the institution of the Lord's Supper, we find very clearly there is nothing hypothetical or potential, but something that is actually going to be accomplished, the remission of sins. And that's what we celebrate today, dear ones. This meal is not saying, I hope you know, Jesus really, His blood, His righteousness was really sufficient. No, it was sufficient and we base it upon what God says in His Word. Let's pray together, prepare our hearts now to partake of the Lord's Supper. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You as Your people, great sinners, but greatly loved, greatly cared for, provided for, through our Savior. And Lord, we thank You that You have brought us to this place where we can on a regular basis be reminded of the fact that our redemption is accomplished, it is complete. There is nothing that we can add to it nor take away from it. We praise You, our God, that, that You have given to us Your Word and we cling to the promises in Your Word today. We pray, Father, that that these words that come from Your Holy Word would not, would not pass quickly from our minds or our understanding, but they would have a real effect upon the way in which we live day to day. They would transform our thinking in our families and at the workplace and in the church and in our neighborhood. Oh, Father, we pray that we would today rest secure in the redemption of Jesus Christ. And because we do belong to You, we would seek to go forth, not in order to earn redemption, but rather to show forth the good works, to show forth our gratitude and our love for You because of these amazing gifts that You have bestowed upon us, Your people. We ask, Father, that You would help us now to confess unto You our sin, all sins we have committed against You, Father, and against our neighbor, Father, we pray that You would forgive us. Lord, give to us genuine conviction that we would turn from our sins, that we would repent of them, that we would say about them what You would say about them, that they are unlawful, they violate Your righteousness and holiness, and that You would give us the desire to, to be free of them, the guilt, to be free from from the way in which it affects our relationship, our fellowship with You, our God, the consequences that sin has in our life. Oh God, let us be free of all of these things so that we might be able to enjoy You, so we might be able to glorify You in our bodies and with our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D 
M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.